what is up my dudes welcome back to olympia oddities um pre-show notes for this episode the lacy museum yeah lacy has a museum they have a bigfoot exhibit that's like one of those traveling exhibits that goes around the country but it's here for a few weeks and i definitely have to go check that out um i don't know like all that it entails but i heard that there's like a replica bigfoot skeleton and that's dope but i'm gonna go try to get a picture with that honestly because that would be sweet doing it for the gram and also because i love bigfoot so today's episode is a little bit different than any of them i've done in the past because i'm not covering one main story but a few smaller ones from the town of long beach washington i don't know why but for some reason like it's heating up the weather's getting nicer i've got the beach on my mind and i wanted to take it on down to long beach for this episode so let's jump into it this definitely doesn't cover every strange and spooky happening in the town so i'm sure that we'll revisit this in the future my first story for you is about the haunting at north fork lighthouse and so i originally started researching just hauntings in general in long beach and then i saw the lighthouse was haunted at cape disappointment state park and I had gone there a few years previously with my friend Bree. Like, we just decided to take, like, one of those weird spontaneous day trips. So we drove out there. And we're like, oh, it's going to be so nice. We can take some good pictures. It's going to be awesome. It looks beautiful. On, like, Google Images, it's going to be sweet. So we get out there, quickly realize why it's called Cape Disappointment. It's, like, gray, foggy. We can't see anything. There's supposed to be, like, cool rocks and, like, little islands out in the ocean that we, like, can't see at all. And so we're like, well, we drove, like, three hours. We're not going to just, like do nothing so let's go into long beach and we'll look around i'll tell that part of the story later for my second story but we were like let's go check out the lighthouse you know we're not gonna let a little bit of rain stop us so we walk up to the lighthouse and it's like just pissing rain it's miserable um and there's a plaque there and i'm trying to like lighten the mood so i was like hey maybe if we yell what's on this plaque out into the ocean the lighthouse keeper's ghost will like stop the rain and it will be a nice day or something you know i'm just trying to like joke around i'm like being a dick making fun of the plaque and brie like agrees to do it with me i don't know why but she just goes along with my plan so we like yell dramatically what's written on this plaque like the keepers of the light into the ocean and then fast forward to me reading about the haunting and i find out that we pretty much taunted a very very sad ghost and now i'm kind of afraid that through talking about it i'm gonna like recharge it and give it energy i know that that's a little bit crazy and i'm still undecided on if ghosts are real or not but you know it's a little bit too close to home and i let her know i was like uh hey so we taunted a ghost together so you might want to like i don't know do some cleansing (laughs) just just in case so since 1800 The stretch of coast between Tillamook Bay in Oregon and Vancouver Island, including the mouth of the Columbia River and the entrance to the Strait of Juan de Fuca, has claimed more than 2,000 vessels and perhaps as many as 1,000 lives. At the Columbia, the combination of river flow and offshore currents created an ever-shifting sandbar at the mouth, making it a hazardous crossing. Fog, huge waves, storms, or just plain bad luck sunk the others. Before there were lighthouses on the peninsula, Ships bound for Portland and Astoria navigated their way through the high waves and shifting sandbars by focusing on fluttering white flags and notched trees along the shoreline by day, and flickering signal fires by night. These methods were crude at best, and despite their best efforts, the sheet, 
the she, the sea, offshore, the Long Beach Peninsula, became known as the Graveyard of the Pacific. So, from the main campground at Cape Disappointment State Park, you can see Cape Disappointment Lighthouse to the southeast, and North Head Lighthouse to the north. How did two lighthouses end up so close to each other? Well, the North Head Lighthouse was built in response to an increase in the number of shipwrecks along the peninsula, as sailors coming from the north could not see the light from the Cape Disappointment Lighthouse. The Cape Disappointment Lighthouse had been built to try to help reduce the amount of fatalities, and in 1853, the first shipment of lighthouse materials to arrive sank two miles offshore. Most of the shipment was lost. Unfortunately, once the lighthouse was built, it didn't help much. The 65-foot North Head Lighthouse was designed by German-born engineer C.W. Leek and sits on solid basalt more than 190 feet above sea level. It first used the hand-me-down Fresnel lens from Cape Disappointment, switching to a searchlight and finally a beacon light at the same time the changes were made to the uh, sister lighthouse. A lighthouse keeper's residence is just inland from the North Head Lighthouse. Now offered as a vacation rental through Cape Disappointment State Park, the residence housed a number of families over the years. There were three lighthouse keepers, each working an eight-hour shift to provide 24-hour coverage and ensure that the light remained visible. They carried 30 pounds of kerosene up the stairs, trimmed the wicks, and cleaned the lens, which was the most time-consuming task. Lighthouse keepers cleaned the soot and burnt oil from the lens with rags or pieces of soft wood, used wine to clean the entire lens every 60 days, and polished it with a jeweler's rouge once a year. When not manning the light, the keepers could read books from the portable library, including a new Bible and prayer book issued every quarter. The remote location meant few visitors, and they had strict schedules to ensure 24-hour coverage. So North Head is the windiest lighthouse on on the West Coast. Uh, let me try that again. North Head is the windiest lighthouse on the West Coast and the second windiest in the entire nation. On April 19, 1932, a wild duck went crashing through one of the storm panes in the lantern room, causing slight damage to the lens. The wind was so bad, it also might have driven the first keeper's wife to jump over the cliffs into the freezing ocean. Alexander K. Pisonin, who had been serving as head keeper at Tillamook Rock Lighthouse, was transferred to North Head to be its first keeper. Keeper Pasonen was born in Finland in 1859 and immigrated to the United States in 1876. Freed from the isolation of Tillamook Rock, Pasonen married Mary Watson in 1890, two years after arriving at North Head. In the spring of 1923, Keeper Pasonen took his wife to a doctor in Portland, Oregon, where she was diagnosed with melancholia, a condition marked by persistent depression and ill-founded fears. The couple returned to North Head on June 8th, and the following morning, Mary arose early and went for a walk with her dog, Jerry. The dog returned a short while later, and its strange antics alerted the keeper that something was wrong. The local paper explained what happened next. He notified the boys at the radio station and also at the weather bureau, and a search party was soon organized. The dog led searchers to a spot just under the fire control station near the North Head Lighthouse, and there they found her coat lying on the edge of the cliff. A trail went through the tall grass, as though someone had slid down the cliff, which was the mute evidence of what had befalled the unfortunate woman. At extreme personal risk, second assistant keeper Frank C. Hammond recovered Mary's body from the base of the cliff before the tide could carry it out to sea. Mary Pasonen was buried in Ilwaco, And when Alexander passed away two years later, not long after retiring, he was interred next to his wife. 
Mary had become a member of the Unity Movement, which was known for faith-based healings, a few years before her death. And the night before she slipped down the cliff, she wrote a letter which included, I see where I have been in the wrong in a great many of ways, but please God, I will try to change and do better. I'm even going to try and do without my medicine, and I'll just pray I get better and better. Rumor has it that her spirit still wanders the lightkeeper's house. Visitors, ground groundskeepers, and even a few current volunteers report strange experiences with electrical surges, moving objects, and a presence both in the lighthouse and the residency where Mary tended to the home and gardens. The North Head Lighthouse is still an active aid to navigation, although the lighthouse keepers who once tended the flame have been replaced by an automatic, automated beacon. At least once a day, someone asks us about Mary, says Janice Perry, who volunteers with her husband as a North Head Lighthouse host for Cape Disappointment State Park. Her sad story has kept people talking for years. All right, the second story we're covering today comes with an announcement. Ready? Drum roll. I'm competing in the 2019 Bride of Jake contest. Okay, so for those who don't know who the heck Jake is and why he has a bride contest, calm down, remain seated, chill out, pop a chill pill, maybe don't do that, drug addiction's not a joke, um, I'll just tell you everything you need to know. Just down the road from the world's longest driving beach exists my favorite tourist trap of all time, Marsh's Free Museum. The shop full of souvenirs, trinkets, and arcade machines sits atop the uh, main strip in town across the street from the world's largest frying pan the nine foot six inch diameter frying pan was constructed in 1941 by the city's chamber of commerce and was one time actually used in the peninsula clam festival but tucked away in the back of the shop across the street in a glass case is the man himself jake the alligator man his front half resembles a human and his back half is all gator the Marshes first met Jake in 1970, or 1967 when a local antiques dealer offered to sell them his mummified body for $750. He knew my wife Marion and I liked that weird kind of crap, Marsh said. We found a way to buy it. We thought it would be a good conversation piece. No one around here knows for sure where Jake the Alligator Man originally came from, but Junior Marsh has heard some interesting stories. Visitors to Marsh's Free Museum have told him that this so-called half-man, half-alligator mummy used to smoke cigars and hang out in a swank New Orleans brothel while he was still alive and wiggling. One Kelso couple said that they saw Jake performing in a sideshow at a Texas carnival. He supposedly answered simple yes-or-no questions with a nod of his head. He even dressed in drag at a San Francisco, San Francisco club, according to some reports. There, he was Minnie the Mermaid. A few of us get Jake for what he really is, and we love the creepy vintage carnival circus type edge he brings to town, said Marion Marsh. Others are totally creeped out by him. Others would rather we wish we were famous for more highbrow cultural things. Jake has always been popular with visitors and has a huge cult following all over the Pacific Northwest, popping up as a sticker on the bumper of cars all over. I had one on my old car, and on my next trip to Long Beach, I'm definitely getting another or a three- but on November 9th, 1993, Jake's fame went nationwide. On that day, the cover of the World Weekly News read, Half alligator, half human found in Florida swamp. The photo was taken straight off one of the postcards from Marsh's Free Museum. The article started what? 
started with what may be man's missing link, a grotesque hissing creature with the head and upper body of a human and the dragon-like lower body of an alligator, has been captured alive just miles from here in the Big Cypress Swamp. There is no doubt that the prehistoric, uh, bizarre, er, there's no doubt that the bizarre prehistoric beast found basking in the marsh is an early ancestor of man that took a wrong turn on the twisting road of evolution. Also in the article was a faux doctor, Simon Schutz analysis. I was most impressed with the size of its cranium, which indicates to me that it has a human-sized brain. Of course, an intense search is underway to locate any other Gator Man creatures. It's difficult to believe that just one of them could, could have managed to survive on its own. In the meantime, whether by twist of fate or stroke of luck, science has the opportunity to look into the face of a creature that may be one of our forefathers. <laughs> Marsh said that he was angry that the tabloid used his picture without his permission and without giving him any compensation, but he found the tale amusing, just as he does all the others. So, where did Jake really come from? Who or what was he? Marsh says that he doesn't know and he doesn't want to. People like the mystery, he said. Why ruin the thoughts? Well, I'm about to ruin the mystery and the thoughts, maybe a little bit. The most likely explanation is that Jake was the creation of Homer Tate, the man responsible for countless gaffes for the sideshow circuit during its heyday in the early 20th century. Homer Tate made a variety of artifacts, including mummies, mummies of mermaids, shrunken heads, which were very popular for rearview mirrors in the 50s and 60s, and other forms of freaks of nature, said Joe Meehan, cur curator of the Arizona Historical Society Pioneer Museum in Flagstaff. <clears throat> According to Tate's granddaughter, Veda Tate, I know he scoured the desert where he lived at Apache Junction for animal skin and bones, but I also heard he used human hair from any source he could find, beauty shops, assorted places. I was told that his key ingredient was powdered horse hoof glue or casein glue. He would soak the newspaper and then add the powdered glue until it was like paper mache, but that's only what I've heard. I never saw him working and I would have been too small to remember what he was doing. But he would use doll hair, horse hair, human hair, or whatever he could scavenge. Oh, as far as the color, I think he used whatever he could get his hand on, and yes, even shoe polish. He was pretty resourceful. His best-known work is The Thing in Arizona. A large number of billboards dot this lonely stretch of desert highway, trying to entice people to stop and find out what the mysterious thing might be. The Thing is supposedly a, mother, a mummified mother and child of unknown origin kept under glass. In 2007, Jake's first 75th birthday celebration was held. It was a simple party with cake, balloons, and party hats, and the mayor presented the key to the city to his most famous resident, Jake. The next year, Wendy Murray got involved and added a burlesque show, live music, and the Bride of Jake contest. Jake is kind of an ambassador and patron of the lowbrow arts, she said. In August of 2019, Jake will have a burlesque bachelor party, a parade, a car show, and his bride contest, where I hope to win his heart, at least for a year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Olympia Oddities. Check out the Instagram and Facebook at Olympia Oddities Podcast, and feel free to send any requests or personal stories. Um, just DM me or send me an anchor voice message. Bye, and until next time. <laughs>